God be within us to refresh us, around us to protect us, before us to guide us, above us to bless us, beneath us to hold us up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Think back to the colic for this morning, which you heard at the beginning of the Liturgy of the Word. Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. It is the function of the collect to collect the ideas that form the theme for a Sunday. The theme for this Sunday, then, is living according to God's will. We have three lessons that, are all, that all bear on that theme, one from the prophet Isaiah, one from the epistle to the Hebrews, and one from the gospel according to St. Luke. The readings lately have been jumping around in the Bible, and this morning we have no selections from serial readings of any book. All three stand on their own, yet bear on the theme. The reading from Isaiah is from the very beginning of his prophetic book. Remember, Isaiah is a major prophet. That means he has a big book. Minor prophets have little books. Calling them major or minor doesn't mean more or less important. It only refers to the size of the book. However, Isaiah is a major prophet, not only for the size of his book, but for the importance of his message. Early Christians read Isaiah and found in it many references which they interpreted as predicting the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Not surprisingly, during the Christmas and early Epiphany seasons, our readings draw heavily on Isaiah. I suspect that you wouldn't be surprised to learn that the scribes and Pharisees read Isaiah somewhat differently. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are generally accepted as having been written by the prophet himself, with certain additions by later writers. The balance of the book, chapters 40 to 55, called Deutero-Isaiah, and chapters 56 to 66, called Triturero-Isaiah, were written a long time later by other writers, but of Isaiah's school of prophecy. The reading from this morning is from the very beginning of Isaiah's prophetic work. Isaiah proclaimed his message to Judah and Jerusalem between 742 and 687 BC. He says that this is during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that is the southern kingdom. <clears throat> Uzziah reigned from 783 to 742 BC. Jotham from 742 to 735. Ahaz from 735 to 715 and Hezekiah from 715 to 687 B.C. So this passage probably dates from the late 700s B.C. When I started thinking about this sermon, I read the lessons, as I always do. I immediately focused on the verse in Isaiah that says, Bring no more vain offerings, 
Incense is an abomination to me. Incense is an abomination to me. Whoa, hold everything. I'm an Anglo-Catholic priest in an Anglo-Catholic parish, and that church building has the smell of incense about it all the time. And Isaiah says that God thinks incense is an abomination. i got to look into this. All right, Exodus chapter 30, loosely quoted. You shall make an altar to burn incense upon, and Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning he shall burn it, and in the evening he shall burn it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Does this mean that Isaiah is telling us that God finds one of his specific directives about worship to be an abomination? That can't be. This would be a good time to remember the maxim that Father Brewer quotes from his seminary New Testament professor, Dr. O.C. Edwards. It's not so important what the Bible says. It is important what the Bible means. What we have here is a part of the prophetic teaching found in Isaiah, Amos, Micah, Hosea, and Jeremiah. What it says makes use of the rhetorical device of hyperbole. What it means is that God will not accept religious worship as a substitute. Note that, substitute for godly living. Put another way, it buys us nothing to attend worship and then go out into the world and live lives devoid of justice, goodness, truth, and mercy. That is, not in imitation of God. We are expected to walk the walk. Talking the talk without walking the walk is useless. Isaiah introduces this passage by saying, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are used here as figures of wickedness. The story of Lot and the mob in Sodom is very well known. Wickedness was so prevalent there that God utterly destroyed both cities. The condition of wickedness, then, is the context for this prophecy against vain worship practices. What the Bible means, then, is that we are expected to live godly, righteous, and sober lives so that our worship will not be in vain. That certainly fits well with the theme for this Sunday, living according to God's will. Our second reading is from the Epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews contains the longest continuous argument of any book of the Bible. In a careful and tight discussion, the author moves with confidence, step by step, through an elaborate proof of the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. But who was the author? Much research has been expended trying to answer that question. From earliest times, the letter has been anonymous, and it is likely that it never carried its author's name. However, all that research has allowed us to say something about the author. First, 
It was not Paul, either directly or indirectly. Second, we do know the kind of man who wrote Hebrews, even though we don't know his name. He was an independent thinker, not Paul or a student of Paul. To support this, we have the style of the letter, the arrangement of the text, including inserting long exhortations into the argument in a way that is absent in any of Paul's letters. And finally, the whole makeup and style of the thought. It appears that Hebrews was written before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, since it makes no mention of this important and cataclysmic event. But that date is by no means certain. Some have dated it as late as AD 95. But at the present time, the time of authorship is next in doubt right behind the person of authorship. Early on, however, the church recognized the intrinsic worth of this book. And Christians through the centuries have been inspired by the great chapter on faith, part of which we heard this morning and by the letter's profound interpretation of the significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ, quote, the same yesterday and today and forever. The anonymous author of the epistle to the Hebrews begins chapter 11 with a famous definition of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He then cites the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as examples of godly lives lived by faith based on faithfulness to God's promise. They lived by faith in the hope of the new Jerusalem. Even though they did not attain that objective during their earthly lives, faith gave them the hope that they would attain to that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem and that she would open her gates and receive in all of God's faithful. The patriarchs died without seeing the fulfillment of what was promised and might seem open to the reproach that their faith was in vain. But they looked forward in hope to God's promise, rejecting the temptation to turn back their lives show that they were concentrating on a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is pleased to be identified with them and has prepared for them a city. <coughs> the vision of that city as an ordered civilization, secure against all enemies, prosperous and peaceful, has been a favorite image of Christians through the centuries. Likewise, we also live our lives in that faith and hope. So again, we find the theme for this Sunday, living according to God's will. The reading from Luke's Gospel comes closest of our three to being a serial reading. But even here, the lectionary is skipping around in the book. In today's reading, we hear about the church and the kingdom of God. It starts out with Jesus' soothing assurance, Fear not, little flock, 
for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Since early times, the flock has been seen as a reference to the church, with Jesus as its shepherd. The kingdom, the 3995 term for that, is the eschaton. The kingdom is a future gift of God to the faithful, the church. Luke follows with his version of the quotation you hear me use as an offertory sentence from time to time, particularly in Lent and last Sunday. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. That version is from St. Matthew. Luke shortens it a good bit, but the sentiment remains. If you've wondered about the reference to moths, in the Oriental society in which Jesus lived, tapestries and carpets were items denoting wealth, possessions of value, possessions that were open to attack by moths. Next, Luke provides an allegory about preparedness for the coming of the kingdom. He tells us about servants waiting for their master to come home from a marriage feast and how important it is for them to be ready at any time that he might come home, even the wee hours of the morning. How those poor servants were supposed to get any sleep, I can't imagine. But that's stretching the story. Never a good idea. This allegory is akin to Matthew's parable of the wise and foolish virgins and their oil lamps. They both make the same point about preparedness. For Luke, the waiting servants are the early church. The absent master is the risen Christ. And his return is the second coming. The 3995 term for the second coming is the parousia. We are warned to be on watch for Christ's return, no matter when it may come, for we cannot know when. Luke's community would have interpreted the marriage feast as representing the time that Jesus was in heaven, after his ascension, and before the second coming. In Luke's allegory, when the master does come and finds the servants ready for him, he is so delighted that he turns the first century world order on its head. Instead of the servants serving him, he has them sit at table and eat dinner while he serves them. Later, Luke will quote Jesus as saying, I am among you as one who serves. That quote is certainly consistent with the story this morning. I think it's interesting that allegory was a teaching tool rarely used by the rabbis and probably never used by Jesus himself. But allegory soon became popular with early Christians, which would explain why Luke would have chosen to use it here. No doubt, though, this allegory is built on authentic teachings of Jesus. Finally, Luke provides a parable about a homeowner being on guard against a thief. Apparently, this homeowner wasn't on guard and had his house burglarized. Lest there be any chance that we miss his point, Luke puts it quite plainly. You also must be ready, 
for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. <coughs> if we are to live according to God's will, clearly we are expected to be ready at all times for his return. <coughs> what does that mean? It means living our lives as though the second coming, the parousia, will happen at any moment and being ready for it. It means living lives in as close an imitation as we are able of the way Jesus dealt with the folks he encountered during his earthly life. That's certainly a lot to ask. But it bears on the admonitions in the Isaiah pericope this morning about worshiping flamboyantly and then going out into the world and living lives devoid of justice, goodness, truth, and mercy. The passage from Hebrews talks about the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and living lives of faith and hope to attain to that heavenly city. Those are ways of speaking about the coming kingdom. Living lives of faith and hope means to live in imitation of God. So, try, try to live your life as an imitation of Jesus' earthly life, treating the people you encounter as he would treat them. That's a tall order, I know. It certainly is for me. And if you fail more often than not, don't be discouraged and give up. Keep trying. I can tell you I only know one fellow who was able to pull it off. He's the one on the crucifix up here. But it is God's will that by faith and hope, we still try our very best. <coughs>